Welcome to Captainology, Tales from the Line. I'm Andrew Rice, a Purdue senior graduating in December of 2020. I hold my commercial certificate with my multi-engine and instrument ratings, and I'm a certified flight instructor. Total hours, 745. And my name is Josh Kinnett, a Purdue senior also graduating in December 2020. I too have my commercial certificate with my multi-engine and instrument ratings, and I am also a certified flight instructor. My total hours are 375. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing automation and its effect on crew resource management during an emergency and abnormal situations in the cockpit. As Purdue students in the Professional Flight Technology Program, we are constantly reminded how we need to maintain professionalism and practice total awareness and resource management throughout our entire school career. Even after graduation, many companies in the airline industry expect this and much more, especially crew resource management. The intent of this podcast is to inform others of real-world accidents and incidents with the goal of expanding the listener's understanding of how automation can affect crew resource management. This podcast will focus on system anomalies and emergency situations that might occur or have occurred inside the cockpit of an airplane. Before we get started, Josh and I would like to thank everyone tuning in to listen uh, and to hear what we have to say. So before we begin, Josh and I would also like to give a brief definition of crew resource management and what that term means. The term CRM or crew resource management is the effective use of all available resources for flight crew personnel to assure a safe and efficient operation. With good CRM, this reduces errors, decreases stress, and increases overall cockpit efficiency. CRM or crew resource management can make or break a flight. Automation in today's aircraft can be a major factor in any accident, and crew members should be prepared to work through any problem they may encounter. Now, with that being said, we would like to discuss a case study by the NTSB about a Super King Air 200 that had an in-flight electrical failure and crashed, killing the 10 occupants on board. On January 27, 2001, a Super King Air 200 that was operating under Part 91 and IMC conditions suffered an electrical failure. All 10 occupants aboard were killed, and the airplane was destroyed by impact forces and a post-crash fire. Now, the NTSB, or National Transportation Safety Board, determined that the probable cause of this accident was the pilot's spatial disorientation resulting from his failure to maintain positive manual control of the airplane with the available flight instrumentation. Although the aircraft suffered a major electrical failure in the AC electrical system, like I just said, the main cause of the accident was due to the fact that the crew did not maintain positive manual control and they did not perform proper CRM. Now, AJ, we're both in a Boeing 737 sim class and we both encountered simulated emergency situations in a heavily automated aircraft. Like I said, the sim class is our AT-47 class and what we do here is demonstrate proficiency and crew coordination at normal procedures, instrument procedures, flight planning, and crew resource management. We are also expected to demonstrate proficiency in the operation of all systems in both abnormal and emergency situations. Just recently, I was given a situation where there was a fire in the forward cargo compartment following a generator failure. Although this was not as severe as the full-on in-flight electrical failure mentioned earlier, I still managed to become distracted and I got off course, resulting in a loss of 5,000 feet. This course as a whole has directed, directly taught us how to counteract the negative impacts of automation and ensure that we as professional pilots can recover from any situation that may arise. 
Now, Josh, kind of building off what you just said there with the NTSB uh, investigation, the accident investigation, is I want to talk about one of the key points of this podcast, and, and that's that one of the most important skills to possess as a pilot is situational awareness. With good crew resource management, the situational awareness has increased. Now, regardless of if the crew is responsible for just their own lives on, let's say, a solo flight, taking the aircraft somewhere, or if they have a fully packed aircraft with 100 lives on board, um, the crew members, regardless of either situation, it's their job to work together, have that crew resource management, and be aware of the state of the aircraft and all of its systems, keeping track of time and fuel, and just be aware of anything on board that system that could be operating abnormally. Now, as part of situational awareness, knowing when something goes wrong is only part of the solution. Figuring out how to correct the failure and how to safely continue is what separates the professional pilots from any average Joe. In another situation, much like the King Air 200 from before, um, a single engine Cessna Cardinal flown by a single pilot experienced an electrical failure on a final approach in IMC conditions at night. So in other words, this pilot was in the clouds at night and had no control over his lights, his flaps, communications, and GPS, but luckily he did have a backup gyro that was operational, so his steam gauges still worked fine. Um, he was situationally aware of his condition and he first just maintained altitude and tried to stay level so he wouldn't have to worry about any obstructions on the ground or running into, let's say, a mountain or anything. Um, but he would later initiate a climb in order to escape these IMC conditions to get above the clouds and try to figure out the problem at hand. After contemplating for a few minutes above the clouds, the single pilot decided that if he was going to land, he would need to get below the cloud layer. So he eventually found a hole in the clouds and initiated a dive of around 200, or uh, sorry, 2,000 feet per minute, which ends up being around 33 feet per second. So this pilot is at night with a full out electrical failure and he drops the nose and he's descending almost 33 feet per second. So after this, ATC actually turned on the runway lights for him since they assumed that he was in some sort of trouble and he was actually able to safely land the aircraft. Yeah, so I think this situation is such a good example of how beneficial situational awareness can really be for a pilot in any situation. Now, this obviously is an extreme, but situational awareness is such an important piece of being a pilot and maintaining safety. The pilot maintained situation awareness for the entire incident and was able to safely land the aircraft, unlike the NTSB report earlier regarding that Super King Air 200. In that situation, the King Air crashed and killed all occupants on board, whereas this aircraft landed safely without any issues, and the next day he most likely got a maintenance checkup and fixed the problem right away. So as a pilot, and AJ, I'm sure you've kind of thought about this as well, but we hear the term situational awareness a lot, and sometimes we don't even know the true meaning. According to Skybrary, situational awareness means having a mental picture of the existing interrelationship of location, flight conditions, configuration, and energy state of your aircraft, as well as any other factors that could be about to affect its safety, such as proximate terrain, obstructions, and weather systems. This potential uh, has a consequence of inadequate situational awareness, including C-fit or controlled flight into terrain, loss of control, loss of separation, or an encounter with wake turbulence, severe air turbulence, or unexpectedly strong headwinds, or a combination of the previously mentioned. 
Gotcha. All right. So thank you for that definition of situational awareness, Josh. It'll definitely clear it up for some of our listeners, give them a little bit of a clearer picture. Um, but on that topic, we'd like to welcome our special guest, Todd Van Diemen, uh, for today's podcast. Todd is a captain on board an Airbus A310 and has been flying for almost over 40 years. Over the course of his career, he's had and experienced many abnormal and emergency situations. And today we're lucky enough to hear one of his stories that he has for us. Uh, good afternoon, Todd. We want to welcome you to the podcast. We appreciate your time and effort to talk with Josh and I today. Um, just to start out, uh, we'd like you to give a brief introduction of yourself, um, some flight experience, and anything else you think that would be pertinent to this story. All right. Uh, my name is Todd Van Diemen. been flying for about uh, 38 years, I think, 39 years. Uh, been commercial pilot uh, at an airline now 32 years. And... Uh, flying uh, some pretty nice equipment and uh, I've always enjoyed aviation and passed it on to my kids and my nephew and and uh, excited about helping you guys out. Well, cool, cool. Thank you. Um, so briefly, if you could describe the situation that you encountered with the fuel imbalance in the cockpit, uh, some describe what you were seeing, uh, the crew messages and anything else you'd like to. Okay. Yeah, you know, as an as an airline pilot over the years, you know, you always have uh, some things you train for, and and uh, guys training in uh, at Purdue University or some of the other universities, any flight schools, are learning how to handle abnormals and emergencies. So it's not like it's uncommon to have an abnormal. Uh, emergencies, of course, aren't near as common. And uh, I had a, a fuel issue uh, one time here not not too long ago, and uh, and what came together was uh, I was heading out to the West Coast. And uh, before we reached the mountain range, uh, going over the Rockies, uh, we had a fuel imbalance, uh, uh, not really a left or right uh, wing-to-wing imbalance, but uh, we're unable to pump fuel out of some of our tanks. And uh, the main part of our fuel was stuck in tanks that I needed, and uh, we, were, we were down to probably less than about 45 minutes of fuel uh, in the tanks that uh, my fuel pumps were burning from. We had a auto fuel feed system that uh, is normally controls the fuel setup for the for the aircraft, and if it runs as planned, it should be burning in certain tanks uh, until uh, the centers and the afts are, are all burned, uh, and then it will go in the mains. Then it'll go to the outside tanks and burn those last. And what we had was the exact opposite, where we were burning from outside tanks, wing tanks, which are the smallest tanks we have on board. Uh, and then it locked out the other tanks, so we couldn't seem to pump fuel from other tanks to keep the airplane running. Gotcha. So what was your initial reaction uh, with you and your first officer on board that day? Well, our initial reaction, I, you know, every, every so many minutes, usually about every 30 minutes, I'll do a complete check of, uh, of things just running through the systems to make sure engines look good, uh, hydraulics look good, electrical looks good, fuel looks good. And uh, I happened to pull up the fuel page, which uh, I've since made a different procedure. And I'll tell you a little bit about that a little, you know, a little bit further down the road here. But when I pulled up the fuel page, I realized right off the bat that my fuel wasn't burning correctly. And my initial reaction was, huh, we got a problem here. And uh, I talked to my co-pilot real quick. I said, hey, I'm going to need a checklist to figure out what we got going here and let's fix this problem. So, so we went on and uh, she... She aimed for the checklist, pulled it out, and uh, we had a little confusion because we have a system on board that will notify us when we have a problem with different different things, different systems on the airplane. 
and we didn't get any notification. So we're used to something telling us, hey, you got this wrong, and you know exactly where to go to book to look for it. And since we didn't have anything that told us, hey, you got this wrong, now I had to start winging it to figure out what exact checklist I was looking for to figure out what problem that we had. Gotcha. So if you could explain, so what days or what ways, sorry, did uh, your crew resource management and situational awareness and your knowledge of the systems of the aircraft you were on, how did that help with solving your issue? Well, I'll tell you, it got a little interesting because of where we were, um, you know, we were just approaching the mountain range and I was a little concerned about continuing west because I had this problem. We weren't going to, we weren't going to get anywhere uh, to where we could get a safe landing in. So uh, I asked for the checklist and as soon as she handed me the checklist, my mind was starting to think about other things besides just trying to fix the problem. Like what happens if we can't fix the problem? We kind of look for the worst case scenario to get, figure out a game plan from. And then we work backwards to, to making sure that we can fix it after that. So I'm thinking, well, I'm going to have to get this thing on the ground fairly quickly if we can't fix it. So I immediately asked her to uh, pull up Denver weather and Colorado Springs and any other weather close by and uh, to start looking to see what kind of situation we had, what, where we could get on the ground. Because we were only uh, maybe 80 miles from uh, from. Uh, Denver, Colorado, and we knew we could turn around and head that direction pretty quick if we need to, needed to. So in the meantime, she turns around and she hands me the checklist. So now, which is a little abnormal, I'm, I'm starting to look at the checklist by myself while she's doing the, the uh, pulling up weather net because now we have a scenario that, you know, it could turn very unsafe very quickly. So it, it called for a little different situation than the normal where one of you is doing the checklist and one of you is you know monitoring the airplane and and now i'm kind of monitoring the airplane and doing the checklist while she's trying to pull up weather to get us someplace we can land if we're going to have an emergency so it was kind of convoluted how everything kind of came together but that's normally how an emergency or, or severe abnormal i should say uh, starts turning into something bigger and bigger so gotcha gotcha so if if this system anomaly happened again how would you approach the situation if you would approach a situation any differently well let me tell you a little bit about a little more about what we did there so my co-pilot pulled up the weather for denver and it was an eighth of mile blowing snow with 25 knot crosswind uh, so that really put it way out of limits i mean we, you know if we had to do it in an emergency we would land there but it wasn't the ideal situation that was that was for sure with the crosswind the braking action uh, the amount of low visibility. We were going to be working hard just to make the landing at that airport. So I immediately asked her to uh, start getting on the on the landline, trying to trying to get uh, our company on on board with us real quick, and get maintenance on board with us real quick, and trying to get an idea of where we needed to start heading because we had to have a direction right away of where we were going. So we pulled up weather for uh, another part in Colorado, and uh, it was uh, non-usable also. So the uh, company, we got a hold of the company, and the company gave us uh, our best alternative was out actually Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, which was 160 miles away. So I immediately uh, made a turn with the airplane while we're still doing checklists and trying to get things going. We made the turn to, uh, to Albuquerque, New Mexico, so we had at least a safe option to get the airplane on the ground if we had to. So once we started heading that way, uh, we had maintenance on the line. I had my first officer back in the loop with me, what we were doing, where we were going. And uh, we finished the checklist. 
and went down and um, what we had done was uh, we went to a checklist it's called a manual fuel feed checklist and we went in a manual fuel feed and the the aircraft didn't actually go to manual fuel feed like it's supposed to so that's a mechanical setup uh, via electronics that once you turn certain pumps off it cuts the auto fuel feed system out so now you're pumping with whatever tanks you want to pump from well that's the way it's supposed to work but that's not the way it worked when we went to that direction and went to manual fuel feed, I still had the same scenario that I began with, which was burning fuel from my two outside tanks, which were gonna run dry within about 35 or 40 minutes. And uh, you know, with Albuquerque at the point we were going to, that was still about 25 minutes away. So we were getting very close to where we were gonna have a pucker factor if we didn't get it on the ground. So one of the things I did is I looked up and realized, well, okay, we've done the checklist, we've come to this, and and what I got to was that uh, we had fuel in one of our center tanks that uh, had plenty of fuel, and I thought, huh, or I'm sorry, in our trim tank, which is a, uh, a tank that allows us to have a, a better fuel efficiency because of center of gravity. It pumps it up into the tail of the airplane, and it gives us a better center of gravity. And I had uh, three or 4,000 pounds back in that center tank, or that uh, trim tank, and I thought, huh, I bet I could throw that to the center of the airplane. I can move that uh, with a pump, with a switch, and it forces that fuel forward. And normally that's all done automatically. What I don't, I don't do anything to, to make those, that fuel move. So I reached up and I, I went to a different mode on, uh, there's a switch, it uh, switches to a auto mode, to a manual mode, and I went to the auto mode, knocked it off, and uh, I ended up running the fuel forward from the trim tank to the center tank. Then I turned the center tank pumps on, and all of a sudden I was burning fuel. So once I started having that fuel, that gave me an extra uh, 10 or 15 minutes of fuel, I started feeling better. And I realized, well, shoot, I can do the exact opposite. I can take the tank fuel out of my other tanks, run it to my trim tank, my trim tank to my center tank, and my center tanks back into the uh, burning from that to my engines. So I knew now that I had a way to survive if I could make that work. So I turned the auto fuel system back on, which it wasn't working properly anyway, and it ran fuel back to my trim tank, and then I turned it off, and then I ran manually trim tank fuel back to my centers, which I could, I could burn fuel that way. So I was running in complete reverse of how the system is set up to, to work. So you, you asked me about system knowledge in that. Without knowing, first of all, what that switch could do and to run the fuel forward or to, from the, center, or from the uh, trim tank back into the center tanks, the tail tank, uh, back to the center tank uh, if without the knowledge of how to do that and even the uh, I would say more of the idea of hey maybe I should try this it might work we don't know uh, and then the input from my FO uh, between the, the three things coming together we developed a plan and it came together and started working and we actually got ourselves in a fairly safe situation that we now were where at first I thought we were in an emergency situation, now we were back to an abnormal situation, which is where I said we start at one point of the worst case scenario, which is what we did, let's find a place to get this thing on the ground because this is getting ugly, to the better situation, well, we've got it where we're not gonna hurt ourselves or hurt the airplane. We know what we're doing and we know we can get it on the ground safely. So, you know, now we're just to an abnormal and we had to control the abnormal into to do a, just a normal landing at, a, at another airport. So uh, with CRM, I think uh, my co-pilot and I worked great together. Her thought of, of handing me the checklist while she's pulling things up weather-wise 
to the airports and trying to figure out what we had, what we could do. We couldn't really work together at that point because I was busy trying to make sure we had fuel and she was busy trying to find a place for us to put the airplane down. So by separating for a minute and we both had our roles, I think it worked out really good. And then once, um, once she finished and I had made a decision where we were going and what we were doing, and I had discussed that with her and she agreed with that decision, uh, we aimed for the Albuquerque, New Mexico airport and uh, we, we had the game plan, knew what we were doing, and then we went back to trying to uh, troubleshoot the, the system and the problems that we had. So our crew coordination was really uh, excellent uh, via the training at my company is excellent. They did a great job teaching us how to communicate, how to work through problems, and uh, between her system knowledge and my system knowledge, uh, I think it really brought, brought life to the airplane and uh, got us back on the ground safely. Gotcha. Well, it sounds like you had a lot going on and obviously happy you made it back and everybody uh, landed safely. Uh, my last question for you today is if there were any changes to your training that you've experienced, um, would, you, would you want to add anything from your incident to your training that you think could help future pilots? Well, it's funny you ask that question because uh, I got a call from some people in our training department that are asking me about the checklist because, you know, checklists can be very confusing. And when you're sitting on the ground uh, looking at things, it's very different than when you're up in the air and having problems. So one of the questions they asked me is, uh, what, would you, what, would, what could we do different about this checklist to make it easier? Uh, because we went through the checklist and uh, we actually got to a point where I was a little concerned about going forward on the checklist because I actually had things working where I could land safely. And uh, them on the ground looking at what we did were wondering why didn't we continue and finish the last point on the checklist. And, you know, with them sitting on the ground thinking about uh, kind of second guessing what we we're doing, and it was all in a nice way. They're just trying to figure out, you know, how did this happen? How do we keep it from happening? They asked me, they said, why didn't you go on and, and uh, take this whole um, system out of, the, out of the loop, which is the auto fuel feed system? And by pulling a circuit breaker, we could have taken the whole system out of the loop. But at the time, I still wasn't sure that that was the exact problem. All I knew was something wasn't working properly. And I was concerned that if I pulled that circuit breaker and took the whole thing out of the loop, that I could end up with another fuel problem, that I couldn't get the fuel tanks working, the pumps working that I had working and I did. And it was really a, a fun statement that the, the, the fellow made to me. He said, you know, he says, sitting here on the ground, it's pretty easy to second guess. He said, but I'm with you. I 100% understand now and I understand what's going on. So, you know, it's really important to, to, I think, to see these checklists of running the scenarios. It's great on the ground where you run a checklist to fix something, but if you don't see how it works in the air when you're in the middle of the heat of the battle, it's very confusing to figure out what somebody would be thinking when they got to that point. So I think I would encourage, you know, people that are working with the checklists and that, and I think they do a fairly good job of, of trying to come up with the right things in these checklists, but they have to kind of figure out if we had this problem, where you'd be at in your flight and what your reactions would be and how you would handle it. Would you want to do some of the things that checklist is saying to do, or would you be concerned about different uh, opportunities that could uh, arise because of that? Or, or problems that could arise because of doing the checklist. So, uh, but, but the companies do a very good job on putting the checklist together and, and uh, developing scenarios and, and training for these kind of problems. Gotcha. Well, Todd, thank you so much for your time today. We don't have any further questions. Um, again, thank you and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. 
Yeah, and I just want to say thank you again, Todd. It's really great to hear how well airline training can really prepare a pilot for any situation, especially in a heavily automated aircraft. We really appreciate you coming to talk with us today. And I have to say, it is really nice to hear that airline pilots know exactly what to do when an abnormality may arise, regardless of how rare that may be. You know, we as pilots obviously know our systems and what to do in an emergency situation, because like you said, we're trained for exactly that. But some of our listeners who maybe may not be pilots, uh, it's really beneficial to know exactly what crew members go through to keep everyone safe at all times during a flight. Yeah, I would say it's 100% beneficial for um, pilots in training to understand that, but also very reassuring for passengers getting on board any commercial uh, flight. Uh, so just to kind of recap with this interview, um, to talk about what actually happens. So the automation itself with this auto fuel feed unit, the automation failed. So if Todd didn't know exactly what was going on, and if he hadn't been monitoring those systems every 30 minutes, this this situation could have arised and they could instead of just being an abnormal operation, it could have been an emergency operation and things could have ended a lot differently. Um, so this is a great example of an example, I guess, of where automation failed and then the crew had to incorporate their system knowledge into their crew resource management in order to mitigate the risks um, that were associated with the abnormal situation that was happening. So if Todd hadn't known this system in depth and if he didn't recognize the indications, then, like I said, this incident could have perhaps been an accident. Um, so if he didn't if he didn't know the system and just relied solely on that automation, again, the automation is what failed. If he relied solely on that, the crew resource management and situational awareness would have been decreased drastically. So again, this could have gone from just an incident to an accident, but it was the fact that he knew all of these automated processes um, which increased their crew resource management, which then led to them solving the problem. In regards to automation, aircraft systems have significantly changed over recent years. If we were to just take a look back, you know, 100 years from now, uh, just sending one person from the East Coast to the West Coast would be an absolute dream. And now we're sending flights of 300 to 400 people all the way across the ocean. So even if you decrease that margin of time, if you compare the cockpits from the 1990s to early 2000s to those of today, you'll see an even bigger change. So the most obvious of these changes is gonna be the instrumentation of your flight instruments and what you're looking at. Uh, however, even the systems of the airplane themselves, such as a fuel system mentioned by Todd Van Diemen, are very complex and if they malfunction, they can be detrimental to the safety of the flight and the safety of the operation. Automation has been added to these aircraft systems in order to increase safety and decrease the margin of human error. However, with that said, the automation can hinder a pilot's ability to fly an aircraft if he or she does not have a great understanding of how each system component works and how those systems operate with each corresponding system. Yeah, AJ, that's a really good point. And on top of that, a system anomaly is not an anomaly until it happens. So preparation, training, and expecting the unexpected may increase the ability of a pilot to deal with the situation at hand. Although we are limited to our experience in the industry, being brand new pilots, we understand the approach and mindset to emergency situations, uh, and that it's what saves lives when these instances occur. In our future endeavors, we may encounter a situation or emergency in an aircraft that 
we may not have trained for, but the approach to each emergency situation is critical in determining the success of the crew's ability to resolve the problem safely and efficiently. As technological advancements continue to be introduced, pilots have the responsibility to expand their knowledge of these new aircraft systems. Automation is something that's inevitable in any industry, and we, as operators, are responsible for keeping up to date with the changes in technology. Overall, the intent of this podcast was not to draw new conclusions about any of these accidents or incidents, rather explore and highlight how automation affected each situation and how the automation played a role in crew resource management in abnormal and emergency situations. We thank all of you for stopping in and listening to us today. Automation can greatly increase or decrease crew resource management, and understanding the systems of these heavily automated aircraft is advantageous and absolutely critical in mitigating the risk of any abnormal or emergency situation. Whether you are a pilot, a passenger, or just someone who is interested in aviation, we hope that you have a better understanding of how automation can affect crew resource management.